Hey, everybody, it's Alex Shaw with the Risk Matters Podcast. I'm here with Melanie Curtis, who's been really generous to sit down with me this morning, albeit over Zoom. I, I, I so wish we could be in person. It's, it's, it's the ideal, but in these times, sometimes the, the logistics get to be a bit more difficult. But thank you for joining me. Uh, thank you, Alex. I'm happy to be here. And hey, Zoom is better than nothing. It's, it's, I agree it's a good conversation we're about to have. So tell me what uh, what you did this past weekend, perhaps opener <laughs> to folks to who don't know much about your story. Yeah, yeah, I was relatively close to where you are. I was in Orange, Virginia. I'm a professional skydiver. I'm a life coach and a writer and speaker. So this past weekend was actually a really special new event happening at that skydiving center where we had a women's weekend where we both jumped throughout the day and helped people learn and connect and make friends, have some laughs, all the normal stuff that you do as a professional skydiver in that capacity. And in the evenings, well, actually one conversation was in the evening, one was in the morning, but we had facilitated conversations to share experiences. So the Saturday night dialogue was women sharing their experiences in this very historically and currently male-dominated situation and starting to make some efforts toward culture change in our sport. So that's been very exciting. The Sunday morning, we included the men and we had a really open dialogue about what does male allyship look like and those types of things inside of this really fun, amazing place and community where people go to have a, have a, a break from, you know, the stresses of their lives as well. Yeah, very cool. I, I do think of, of so many of those types of activities as an escape. Mm-hmm. Um, I got, well, tell, so two things based on that. Were these folks, are these like married couples or couples who come or were these all just individuals? So you're, tell me a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, so it varies. It really varies. That's one of the coolest things about the skydiving community, honestly, is that the people that it draws are so wide ranging, Mm. so, so wide ranging. You can have the person who wants to live in their van and travel around the country. And you can have the person who has a really intense job that really enjoys going on into the skydiving community and jumping on the weekends to have fun and, and shake it off, shake off the stress of the week. Um, And then you have the other people that go hardcore in competition and you have people like me that (laughs) falls in love with it so so deeply that it becomes a really main pillar of their lives. So it really, really, really ranges. Yeah. Well, I had a a guy who was an early pioneer in the mixed martial arts community on last week, Rick McCoy. And he said, you know, the funny thing about fighters is there's no type. And, Mm -hmm. And I see that in ultra marathoning and in the whitewater community. I mean, there's certainly, there's kind of a, you know, you hear a dirtbag paddlers, right, for the whitewater community and that kind of thing. But, but if you step back, I mean, and I look at the landscape of the folks that I've, I've spent time on the water with over the years, attorneys, you know, mm-hmm. folks who have gone to college, folks who haven't, folks who live out of a van, kind of very, very reminiscent of that. Now, one thing you, you mentioned is you, you get a weekend, and I forget the word you use, but essentially, the, to paraphrase, free of clutter and kind of noise. What is it about skydiving? I've experienced this too, where the way I've said it is when I'm surfing, it's so loud that it's quiet and you're so hyper. Yeah. So tell me how that takes shape or form with skydiving. I feel like that's very common among 
not just extreme sports, but immersive activities. You cannot be thinking about the stove or your remodel or whatever, you know, you can't be thinking about that stuff when you're skydiving. It's a really immersive activity. It's, it evokes flow state really quite easily. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody reaches flow state easily skydiving. It's that it requires our intense presence. And so that sort of gives you a break from the monkey mind. It gives you a break from just the normal stresses that you chronically are under, Mm. which seems a little bit weird because theoretically you're then under this different kind of, of quote unquote stress. Right. And I mean, honestly, talking about risk being on this show, it's, also a huge range of how people approach risk. Like I say all the time, I'm, I'm an oddly risk averse person, which is kind of funny when you think about, oh, I'm a professional skydiver. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a whatever. All the things that I do that have inherent risk built into them for whatever reasons, those things might be scary. But yeah, you've got people that really push, push the edge of physical safety. And then you have other people that have a large bubble of safety around them, but they really get something out of that presence that skydiving brings or the community or whatever else. Mm. One of the things we like to say that what your comments just prompted was that risk plays out over the course of a lifetime. So individual risk or probability of injury or an accident, it's relatively limited, any you know, one off. But the question is, how can you perform at a high level consistently over the course of a lifetime? And what I've noticed in just peers that I've got and folks like you who I've spoken with, there's a certain cerebral nature to those who have um, have staying power in these types of activities. You mentioned being rift risk averse. How did you even get into skydiving then? What was the <laughs> trigger know. kind of there? I think that's so insightful, by the way, what you just said about people that are around a long time having a cerebral nature to them. I think that matters. I really do. I mean, it, it cause I've been skydiving 25 years just to quickly talk about the scope of my career And I think a huge part of why I've been safe over those, over those years and over the million different things that I've done in the sport of skydiving is that I'm constantly, consistently learning from incidents that other people have happened to them, that I don't need to learn everything just myself. That's a big part of how skydiving safety is fostered and how growth in the sport around risk management and around safety is managed or is built because we're chronically and in a good way looking at things that do happen so we can learn from them so they don't happen again. But you asked, how did I get into skydiving? I grew up around aviation. My dad is a pilot. We have a grass strip behind our house on a dead end road. And my dad opened a drop zone literally in our backyard. So I grew up getting exposed to both aviation and at a young age skydiving, which (laughs) meant I basically sat through the first jump course a bunch of times as a kid. And Mm -hmm. eventually when I was 18 years old, I said, okay, tomorrow I'm doing it. And the rest is sort of history. Wow, that's such a slow burn. You know, mm-hmm. I, well, there's been a lot of articles over the years in the whitewater community about paddlers who get up and they start taking on bigger challenges and they have success. And again, back to probability and risk playing out favorably for the individual a vast majority of the time until it doesn't. 
we see folks take on far too much risk far too early in their careers. And part of that is because there's a cool community there and you get in with these folks who you admire and you look up to and you kind of want to emulate um, because they are, they've done all the wilderness trainings multiple times, the swift water rescue trainings, and they've got a knowledge base that you're, you're so thirsty for. And the only way to get it is to kind of lean into spending time with them. Well, spending time with them often looks like doing the activities they do. What were some of the ways that, that you avoided that inclination or proclivity towards just jumping right in, if you will, far before 18? Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, that's a great question. I could have gone skydiving when I was 16 because I had my parents' permission. I was allowed. Uh, I was just too scared. I was, I really wasn't ready yet. Uh, that said, one of, so for me, as this quote unquote risk averse person, AKA a person who experiences anxiety and fear at a really potent level. And I'm not just suggesting that I'm different from a lot of people in the world. I mean, some people experience fear at a potent level and some people experience it less potently, but we all experience it in our own ways. Anyway, why I bring that up, it's very sort of relevant also to the work that I I do in the lane of life coaching and the courage and bravery that's required to look into our blind spots, to have relational conflict, to learn about undoing our own toxic patterns from our, uh, you know, how we grew up. So that is interestingly parallel to skydiving. A, A part of skydiving that is really a, a good example of this is young jumpers will get into the sport, <clears throat> excuse me, and they will see people flying really fast, cool, quote unquote, cool parachutes. And they will want to be on those cool parachutes right away. But the that's a big part of the sport that's really, really dangerous Mm -hmm. in the sense that you really need a lot of skydives, a lot of time seeing the earth relative to your physical distance from it, the angle that you are approaching it. Like those visual pictures can only be cataloged by making skydives. So a person with 200 jumps cannot possibly have the experience enough to stay safe to manage a parachute that goes at the ground very quickly. So if that makes sense. So when people do that, that's when they cross that line of maybe they think they have the Dunning-Kruger thing going on. Oh, I have 200 jumps. I feel like I have the capability that I do not have. And Mm -hmm. that's where people get hurt and that's where accidents happen. So for me, I luckily learned those things early on. I had good leaders, I had good mentors, and I had my own sort of high anxiety to to also slow me down. Hmm. Now, tell me how many jumps do you feel like it takes to become proficient? Or if you ranked it like in a in a martial arts perspective, at what point are you a black belt? Oh, gosh, yeah. It's a white belt. You know, I... People hear all the the things. Maybe uh, maybe they do. Maybe they don't. 
about Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours, hmm. right? If the, yeah. That from the book Outliers, where they say, okay, if you have 10,000 hours doing something, theoretically, that makes you a master, that makes you an expert. So I have just over 11,000 jumps and however many countless hours flying in the wind tunnel, flying parachutes, it's just, it's a lot, right? Yeah. That said, for example, currency in skydiving also really matters. So in my skydiving career, I've been skydiving 25 years. As I said, I have that many jumps. And I had a period in my skydiving career where I had, I took two years off where I didn't skydive really at all for almost two years. And so coming back to the sport, I made the very conscious choice to fly a parachute that was a bit more docile knowing that it had been a while, even though I have at, had at that point, probably, I don't know, 10,000, 9,500 jumps or something a lot. I know based on my, because of my experience to respect entering and being in the sport in that way and without currency. So mm. there's a lot of different factors that go into it, but yeah, one of the worst things is that like someone with a thousand jumps, that's a really dangerous, a danger zone for people. People get a thousand jumps, they'll have seen a bit, they'll have been in the sport for a while, and they really don't have the experience that will keep them safe, but they have enough experience where they think they're better than they are. Yeah. So the way a good friend of mine breaks that down for like raft guides, new guides is first year people tend to be far too conservative and actually end up making a few mistakes because they're they're indecisive. Yep. Second year guides, all of a sudden they're spinning their paddle in the air. You know, they're, they're boofing <laughs> off rocks and, and, and getting a little bit more testy. And, but ultimately somewhere within those years, they tend to have some sort of experience that right sizes the recognition of where they actually stand. And so you get those four five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 year guides who are, you know, they know how to stretch it a little bit, but but they know mostly how to stay within the, the confines to create an experience for guests that they really, they really paid for. Yeah. One of the, if there's a guy I listened to podcaster, Andy Stumpf, who's done a, a ton of um, what is it? Wingsuits. Yep. I don't think he does base jumping, um, but maybe he does a lot of skydiving. And one thing that, you know, he has a history with Dev Gru, SEAL Team 6, and, and people pose the question, if you could go back in today to help out on XYZ mission, would you? And he says, I would absolutely say I really want to, but then I would decline because mm. my currency is not up to date. There I'm you go. Current on all of the new technology and the techniques and the equipment, and I would be doing a disservice to the folks that I'm supposed to be alongside supporting yeah. um, in, in that endeavor. So I, I think that currency piece is, is really interesting because it's easy to perceive that, look, once you've mastered it, you're the you got master, it. right? You, you got, got it. it. Yeah, you're, it's not the, the case. Black belt. You can kind of yeah. walk away. <laughs> yeah, it's not the case. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, and I take it, my leadership role in the sport of skydiving very seriously, even though I'm oddly like part of my leadership is bringing lightness and, and levity to how, how I engage just the life in general. I mean, God, life is freaking ridiculous on so many levels, but, uh, but caring and knowing if somebody is watching what I do, you know mm. what I mean? If I'm being looked to as a leader, it's very important for me to be leading from a conservative place so that the young person who might think, oh, that they're ready for something, that they're seeing someone like me who has, 
a bazillion jumps or whatever, you know, they're, however, whatever pedestal they might be putting me on that they are, they're witnessing me respect the sport really, really highly, even with that high level of experience. Yeah. So that makes me think of a lot of things. One is the degree of kind of shoving ego aside, because there's always a tendency or an inclination, I think for us, when we're highly proficient to show people, you know, no matter how accomplished any of us are, there's always this sense that we have to prove ourselves yeah. in some way, shape or form. Um, and that varies with the individual we're around. Some people, there's a huge body of folks that you feel no pressure to impress. And then others that there is. Um, but it reminds me of what I think the, one of the, the folks we had on a few weeks ago, Steve went, um, who does a lot of hang gliding, a student asked him at some point, you know, when can I get on a hang glider that, that doesn't have the, the wheels. And he said, you know, in that moment, I realized never, you, you should never <laughs> do that if you're going to be conservative. And so he said to this day, he said ever since then, he hasn't done that. And one of the things we see on job sites is really skilled, experienced supervisors and superintendents who, when push comes to shove and the job is a little delayed, they're the ones who step up into the trenches, into the front lines to do the risky work. And I think to your point, the not so subtle message is, hey, if you want to get to this position, you've got to put yourself in harm's way, potentially mm. uh, exceed, the, exceed the risk that's necessary to perform the task in the name of expediency um, or whatever the, the case might be. But I think to be able to do that, to be able to step back from that, rather, takes a, a good amount of just that cerebral nature we, we talked about a moment again uh, ago and a currency, like something you mentioned a few minutes back was that you're constantly uh, aware of industry incidents and you're learning from those. Um, and I can't state enough how important that is for clients, for employees, for employers, that institutional knowledge is really the currency that, that allows you to perform and risk with staying power. So yeah. How you do that and where you go for that, what community that's a part of. Uh, well, I don't know if this will be exactly the answer to that question, but your comment on humility and having nothing to prove, um, that also allows you to bring gravity to the learning process, to the patience that allows you to have patience, that allows you to go at a, a, a pace that actually is truly acknowledging of the risks that we face. Like one of the, one of the best leaders in the sport, he's so awesome. His name is Dan BC. He is a real, he's a huge proponent of safety, similar to me. And he always sort of talks about remembering that every single skydive could be the one where you have the malfunction that is really gnarly, you know, and listen, there are thousands of jumps that go perfectly and it's so amazing and fun. The only way we can access that, that freedom, that fun, the bliss, the beauty, all of the things that we love so much about skydiving is that we have this counterbalance, this sort of yin yang of this ferocity of respect for what we're doing and the, and the ferocity of acknowledging that it could be us at any moment. It could be us at any point. So we need to always be really, really vigilant about practicing our emergency procedures, being super current with those, with those procedures. So that when and if that is 
happening to us, we can, we can handle it. We're just deciding to deploy at altitudes that are safe, that allow us time to deal with a malfunction if we have one. Those types of choices, those types of pieces of leadership matter. Um, and this is something I want to mention. It's sort of on a different track, but having nothing to prove is a big deal also in that it allows you to push the envelope because then if you have those safety pieces in place, you then have the ability with the humility to screw up, to have something that you're trying not work out. So we have an all-female demonstration jump team that's part of, and part of our mission is to be getting skydiving out to the wider world, inspire women and girls to be bold and brave in their own ways, yada, 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 and increase the representation of women in the sport of skydiving, all those things. So we're doing all these demonstration jumps, big flags, flying smoke, streamers, yada, 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 all this stuff. And that's a growth edge for me as a professional skydiver. I, before Highlight, didn't have tons of demonstration jumps. I had a number of fancy demonstration jumps into crazy places for big brands and stuff like that. But with Highlight, it's a mission-driven thing. And we're doing a lot of demos. We're doing a lot of projects to capture content. And inside of that, with a team of women that are all so experienced and, and have nothing to prove, with that, we can do so much more because we can really be learning and really be further on the edge when we're willing to have it not go right. Does that make sense? It makes complete sense. Uh, and it's such a hard thing to put your finger on the pulse of is, is what creates a, I mean, you're talking about kind of a small cultural shift of folks where there's a, a degree of care, compassion, concern, that's genuine, it's authentic, it's played out. There's humility, there's grace when there's a mistake made. Those are all the tenets, some of the fundamentals that we feel really strongly drive organizations consequence in both a positive or potentially a negative direction, depending on how you leverage those things. Mm -hmm. And it can be tough because in some of the industries we work with, you know, you got tough, it's mining, it's construction. And so the idea of creating vulnerability with, frankly, a lot of folks who live difficult lives, they do hard work, they're up very early, they work long hours. Sometimes there's brokenness at home, whether that be relationally or financially. And so the margin in all regards is relatively thin. I think that's where it takes real leadership, humility and leadership to recognize that, to put themselves in a vulnerable position, to lead the way and show their people, hey, look, this is how I'm going to interface with you, where mistakes are made. It's, I, I got to be careful about how specific I get here, but there's one client in particular who has an, there's an estimator who perpetually gets the estimation pretty significantly off. Okay. But this owner's comment is, yeah, we keep them around because we love them. <laughs> go, wow. And their business is doing just fine, by the way. So, but that's the kind of ethos and the culture they've created. And as a result, in, in an industry that's really, really unforgiving as far as turnover, they've got below 10%, where it's usually wow. above 60%, right? And so what do you get from that? You, they have fewer accidents, there's less turnover, there's more competence with the work being executed fewer dollars lost on jobs because you've got an experience. So there's all the things you talk about with creating a group where people feel confident and comfortable to kind of stretch themselves translates so well over to, to the business world as well. 
Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. A lot of what I talk about in my writing and my public public speaking work and stuff like that is the entrepreneurial business leadership type of stuff because culture is creating culture and leading it by example is inherent. Bravery is inherent in that work because how does one create a culture that is emotionally safe? right? How do we create a relationship at home that is emotionally safe? How do we take care of ourselves and our emotional lives and our mental lives when we have such little margin, when we have such stress on us at work or at whatever areas we might have that stress on us? So acknowledging the inherent risks, the inherent fear, the inherent loss, perceptible loss that we might think is there when we quote unquote are vulnerable, right? Like whatever that might mean, whether it's I'm acknowledging a mistake that happened in, in at work or what, you know, like it could be any different scenario. It could be so many things, but making the vulnerability and the, the actual acknowledging of reality, the cultural tenant versus the getting the exact thing right Hmm. that that makes for cultures where people can actually feel less fear acknowledging something they might have screwed up or something they're nervous to say out loud uh, a a divergent thought you honor the divergent thoughts you honor the sharing above all things the content of the sharing and the you know what i mean is less it's less about the specificity of the content so that people can feel free and safe to do that. Yeah. So this is just affirming to me so many of the reasons that I feel strongly about speaking with people like you, because I see these continue these consistencies. I think back to a podcast I did with uh, a guy, Ben Moore, who spent his life, you know, guiding and being on the water. And every day in his group, they do a positive and constructive, a post workday debrief. How did nice. they go? And his comment around that is exactly what you just said. What I'll have to play it back because I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it and butcher it terribly. But essentially, <laughs> okay. the content is important, but it's more about creating the vehicle for the conversation. And occasionally, the content will be kind of, you know, meh. But otherwise, it'll be really, you know, you give the door open for it to be really good. And his comment is when you create that place every day for people to be comfortable to speak, it's not a big deal to talk about when something significant happens because you're used to stepping up, sharing with those people. And you know that even if you can't articulate your thoughts or your feelings as well as you'd like, they understand your intent. They understand your heart. Mm -hmm. And that really, really matters. Let me ask you about, um, you mentioned fear and this is a balance we have to strike. I, I give this example sometimes where if I ask somebody to walk across, you know, You've got uh, in gymnastics, those not tight ropes, but the little, you know, balance beam, the balance beam. Yeah, thank <laughs> you. Thank you. I should know my daughter's going to gymnastics every, <laughs> every Wednesday. So I should know these things. Um, but if I put that a foot off the ground and ask you to walk across it, most people would do it with no problem at all. If I put that a thousand feet up, the, the activity itself hasn't changed. Yep. You know, the, 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 the dimensions of the balance beam, your balance, nothing changes except for the fact that there's, well, maybe it's real risk, you know, but 
But other than that, and, and that results in folks high probability of falling because they get yeah. nervous and scared. How do you, and how have you over the years acknowledged the risk inherent in what you do, but not give it so much real estate that it's, it inhibits your ability to perform at a high level. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when there is mortal danger inside of whatever we're choosing to do that, whatever thing that's inciting the fear, theoretically, when we feel fear, we, our bodies are experiencing it, any scenario as potentially mortal danger, right? So like even historically, gosh, if it's public speaking or if it's a relational conflict or something like that, we're afraid that if we get excommunicated from the tribe or whatever, that we'll die because we won't have the protection of the group. So like there's, there's theoretically deeply embedded mortal danger in all the fear that we feel, but like our bodies, uh, we have this built in mechanism with height to react to keep us safe, which is a good thing. So it's an interesting thing to engage that fear, to engage the physiological response that we have and get more masterful about managing that. So learning how to bring our, our physiology back to a calmer place by controlling our breath, by going into our, our mind and visualizing the outcomes that are potentially positive versus expanding on the catastrophic thought, which our brain is also very good at coming up with, right? That can easily balloon anxiety, balloon fear, and all those things. Certainly when something like skydiving, for example, great example where you can't kind of do it, <laughs> you know, you're either jumping out of the plane or not, but as you learn about the sport, and this is where I think so cool. Like the, like the podcast, this podcast that you do, and you talk to the, to all these interesting people, my guess is you're seeing the amazing nuance and the amazing level of detail in each of these things. Like a person listening to the show might be like, Oh, Scott, I think it's just jumping out of an airplane. Then you fall. And then you have a parachute and you land. Right. Well, yeah. And there are lots of different parachutes. There are lots of different airplanes. There are lots of different versions of instruction. There are lots of different versions of coaching and support. There are lots of different landing areas and wind conditions and areas, you know, so there's a million different things that go into what's the choice that I make around wind conditions when I'm a student versus when I have 11,000 jumps? What is the decision I make around parachute size when I have zero jumps versus when I have 20,000 jumps? You know what I mean? So those choices, we get to learn about that. And then our fear and our anxiety comes down. We get that we are, our bubble of safety is a little bit increased because we start to learn about those details. And just to finish this thought, this stuff is applicable to relational work as well and leadership work. So it's like, how do we exposure, you know, so exposure therapy, you know, for public speaking, for example, I tortured myself for like a year doing Facebook lives, hating every single one of them, but knowing I needed more iteration with 
experiencing the physiological fear and the mindset stuff, whatever my brain might come up with, I needed more iteration with those feelings and thoughts to get more masterful at them. Does that make sense? It does. It reminds me of a, it reminds me of a, a, a guy I really respect a lot of a psychologist, clinical psychologist and podcaster who says that in his practice, he teaches people not to be less afraid, but to be more courageous. Yeah, and more absolutely. It's about a slow incremental exposure on their terms is really important to whatever the fear is. So talk me through, you've got a new student say, or maybe you could talk through your experience. So maybe your experience isn't, isn't typical because you had kind of a much longer runway. Right. Build up <laughs> to it. But what is the typical student experience from day one on to I guess it would last years. You're kind of forever a student, but if you speak to that a bit. Yeah. I think in this, again, it's so funny how the, if I'm telling the story of a skydiving student, how, how applicable this is in the life coaching work that I do, for example, as well. So someone's trying to work through a challenge or a fear or a resistance to something. And there's usually this idea that if I were better at this, I wouldn't feel fear at all. If I were more competent or I'm the loser who's afraid, or there's like all kinds of judgment around feeling fear at all, much less having to navigate the actual experience of the fear and the actual mindset challenges that come with that. So that's one thing that I first try to have people learn how to do is take that magnifying glass of self-judgment and really take it away and really go, it is inherently human to feel fear when we are pushing ourselves. I mean, God, I've been, again, skydiving 25 years, have all the jumps that I have, and I absolutely still feel fear. I am a leader in the sport of skydiving. I'm hired for people to go to go to places and have people talk to me. And I still feel social anxiety when I'm pulling up to the drop zone. You know what I mean? Not that I can't manage it. Not that I'm not as ma more masterful with that now, but it's still there. And I, and I always say that to have people go, oh, to start, start to recognize the humanity in that. Mm -hmm. But a good example is, for example, I talked to this girl who was at the event this past weekend and she had two tandem jumps. And so she's a brand new jumper and she's contemplating doing solo skydiving. And anyway, she told me the story of how the first tandem jump, she was absolutely, utterly terrified, like completely and utterly terrified. And she got through it, landed and was like, holy crap, her sister's a skydiver. And so anyway, it was a big, big thing. She decided, she's like, okay, I, she wanted to go again and do a second tandem. And very notably, her fear from the first tandem to the second tandem di diminished, like went down. So it's not that she wasn't totally, totally scared, but she absolutely had a really stark, obvious decline in her terror from mm -hmm. one jump to the, to the next. And so that's the, the simple thing. It's kind of annoying, but there are no shortcuts. There are no ways around it. You, 
you hear this cliche phrase of you have to go through, you have to go directly at your fear and move through it. But that in my experience, whether we're skydiving or whether we are working through some kind of fear in our relational lives or our leadership and work lives, we have to face it and figure out how to iterate through it such that we don't feel it as potently in the future. Hmm. So it reminds me of a recording a few weeks back with one of the guys, Frank Gonzalez, who runs a lot of ultra marathons. And, and I asked him, what's next for you? And he said, um, and I can't remember if I asked him on the air or off, but he said, I want to walk towards races where, where success is not guaranteed, where mm-hmm. the probability, you know, he, a race he referenced was the Barkley Marathon, which, you know, there's a Netflix series about that. And he had to drop out of that last year. Nobody finished. I think in this over 20 year history, only like 17 people have finished it. Wow. It's a really brutal race. But he was saying that's you got to move towards that. So let me frame this question for you. What is it about? We're big on embracing risk in, in a lot of different uh, capacities um, for our clients because we're big believers that without embracing risk, there's no reward. And, mm-hmm. and so what is it about the reward of skydiving that, that makes the risk and it, engaging that fear head on worthwhile to you? <laughs> I love it. It's a great question. I think skydiving is a, a, a multitude of things, of course, but two things that are really important are one, doing things that we think we can't do is a very, very powerful thought that then can blossom and support every other area of our lives in things that we want to do, in ways that we want to transform, in things that we want to heal, in all kinds of different ways it can support us. And that's that's one of my core tenets of my skydiving story is that I sat through the first jump course a million times. I'm certain, you know, in the back of your mind, unconsciously, you're saying I could never jump out of a perfectly good airplane, you know? And I think what what's missing from that sentence is that I could never jump out of a perfectly good airplane and live you just don't have any concept of what you're doing. And so when I landed from my first jump and I was alive, I didn't, again, my 18 year old brain didn't even know this was really happening, but it proved to me, hey, whoa, not some fanciful life coachy. Oh, you can do anything. It's more in the, in the realm of, I have to at least question what my fear is telling me I can't do. I have to at least question it. Maybe I can't, but if I don't even try, then I'll never know. And so that th- that has supported me hugely. I am an entrepreneur. The reason I am a writer, I write from a really deep and vulnerable place. The most vulnerability you find for me mostly, I mean, at least historically is in my writing. Mm -hmm. And I have a podcast as well. It's called Trust the Journey. That is a new sort of public version of really leaning into what is it and how is it that we can vulnerably share our stories to create conscious connections to grow and contribute right through our practice of this openness, this honesty, this vulnerability. So 
anyway, I could ramble on and on about this. <laughs> well, I, well I, it's, it's, it's hard to unpack. I mean, it, it's difficult to know what to make of, of it in regard to doing those things, right? You, you do them and then you know you felt something and experienced something that was profound, but you're, you're at, a, at, a, at a loss at times for really, what do I make of this really tough thing that whether it was physically tough or emotionally difficult, and, and I think the thing that for me it's always come back to is it can be a bit overwhelming to have a recognition that the narrative that you've created about yourself per, perhaps isn't actually accurate and potentially exceeds what you ever thought it could be. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, that's actually a really overwhelming thought because so, yeah. there's almost an obligation, a responsibility to yourself to live up to what you have the potential to do. So for you, I'd imagine that it is a bit overwhelming to think, you know, you start this skydiving uh, career and then all of a sudden you go, wow, I'm capable of writing and expressing myself and communicating (laughs) and speaking. And the thing that I love the most about your story is that it's, it's, you know, it's not courage if you're fearless. And, and I think that's maybe the biggest message for folks is that you're not unique in your fear, right? There's a spectrum of fear. And certainly there are some who have far more debilitating um, degrees of it. But I'd say for the vast majority of people, the biggest obstacle for them is the perception that, that that's, those are things other people are capable of and and not me. Um, So thank you for that. That was I think so enlightening and so helpful and encouraging in in many ways. Um, So let's round it out with this. I want to hear a bit about, I mean, you've got 11,000 jumps. (laughs) What are some of your funniest memories? (laughs) Um, Maybe even a a scary memory, if you will. Um, But I'm interested in hearing some of those anecdotes. Oh gosh. Well, there are far too many to count. I mean, another thing that sort of supports what you just said, it's very rare that a skydive goes fully according to plan. Like there are so many times when it just sort of screws up and you're flying around each other and you're trying to figure it out. That's a really just, that's, it just happens all the time. And that is another thing that just to, to balance out or to hopefully give a little bit of antidote to this. Oh God, now I'm, I'm realized I'm so much capable than I ever currently thought I was. I, now I have this responsibility to live my life and do all these things. I'm a huge believer in the long game. Mm. And the, that's the only reason my skydiving career exists. It's the only reason my books exist. Oh my God. The audible book I just recorded. Holy crap. Talk about <laughs> oh so did you, my did God. You record that. It's your voice. Oh yeah. It had what to is, be my voice. It had it to called? be. It's called how to fly life lessons from a professional skydiver, but that it's an anthology of all the columns I wrote for blue skies magazine, a, a skydiving and life coaching column for 11 years. It's a long, it's a lot. So anyway, but to answer your question, oh God, there's a million things. Um, Oh, it's so, so impossible to think of these, of these funny, of of a potentially funny story, but oh gosh, what's, what's one? I, I, I mean, this is sort of stupid. It's like totally ridiculous, but like doing silly costume jumps where you wear the a stupid outfit. But for example, I did a, a demo jump back in the day where we landed into Dodger Stadium 
And we had to wear these like bathing suits because it was for this Camp Vegas, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas type of thing, like camp for adults. And so they were like trying to, you know, do these promotional stunts. But that was comical because it was embarrassing, like that type of stuff. Um, Oh, God, I don't know. I'd imagine that so such is the the way in life, I, I think. I've often said the brilliance is in kind of the subtleties and in the small things. And, and as I asked that question, I was like, okay, if you were on the spot and you were asked to think back like <laughs> stuff and I was crying, like, what is a funny, what's a funny one? What's a, but I know, no, I know that's why I'm like, there's so many, like it literally, there's so many. Yeah, oh God. It, and it is, it's all in the small details, but like skydiving is really funny in general even just pausing the video when you are the person who is upside down and your friends are all right side up and you're you know like that is hilarious it never is not funny where clearly you're like in this weird orientation compared to everyone else it's just (laughs) that's just funny and and a lot of that happens that's goes back to this idea of and I don't of, of play and how critical having outlets of play and outlets of fun and outlets of connection and just sort of like looseness, you know what I mean? And our relating to people, having laughs, that so matters. And it gives us such an antidote to the stresses that we normally live with. And skydiving is very, very full of that stuff. It is a true sort of playground, the sky in so many ways. Yeah, I think it's a dangerous thing to navigate on a job site. Playfulness can turn into, into a fight pretty quick, but <laughs> we've got a lot of clients who have crews who are like family. You hear that a lot, but they're actually, you know, it, it's, it's few and far between where they actually are. You go on the job with them and they're playful and it's lighthearted yeah. and innocence. And the, it's just such, so much more of an enjoyable place to, to really be. Um, so tell me, as we round this out, um, where can people find you? you? You've got your hands kind of in a lot of different things. <laughs> yes, I do. Website, different books. You mentioned your podcast, but feel free to plug it again. Oh, yeah. Well, my website is MelanieCurtis.com. People are welcome to email me directly. I always, always welcome that. Mel at MelanieCurtis.com. But yeah, I mean, the Audible book that recently dropped, that's probably the newest thing out. So like I said, How to Fly Life Lessons from a Professional Skydiver. If you want to listen to me waxing poetic with my (laughs) colleague, Jay Maletsky, who's another professional skydiver and spiritual seeker and sort of insight growth-minded person. That's our podcast, Trust the Journey. Today. But there's a million things and I, I welcome you. Follow me on the socials and all those things. But thank you very much for having me. And there's plenty more stories if you'd like to hear them. Yeah, well, I, I really enjoyed it. And it was great to, uh, to speak with you this morning. So thanks for taking the time. And, uh, and thanks to everybody for tuning in. If you've got any questions for Melanie, feel free to reach out. Um, as she described. Melanie, till next time, we'll, uh, we'll catch you then. Thank you so much, Alex. All right. Take care. Mm-hmm.